This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Tim Kapan from Bloomberg in a two-part series on the most impactful news affecting Asia. In the second part of our conversation, we analyze SoftBank's Vision Fund and why the impact of the fund will change the startup landscape across the world. Welcome back with me, Tim Kapan, columnist in Bloomberg Glad Flag. And I probably think he has one of the best opinions and analysis on Asia's tech giants such as the BAT, SoftBank and everything semiconductors that's going on in Apple supply chain. But on this conversation, there's another subject that I wanted to talk to Tim about, which is SoftBank's vision fund of $93 billion, right? It's now gone up to 97 point something. The last quarterly conference call, they revealed that they got a little bit more money in. So it's just heading towards their $100 billion goal. I have been a fan of SoftBank, Japanese telco, but they are very well known for making some of the biggest investments in the world of one which actually take up one-fifth of their balance sheet, that is Alibaba. Alibaba was a fantastic deal for them. And Masayoshi Son, the the CEO and founder of SoftBank, will be uh, kind of riding that one for a very long time, telling the world how brilliant he is by making that deal. And, uh, well, yeah, it was a good deal, and it's, it's definitely made them a lot of money. So I'm going to start off by asking you then, for a start, can you give a quick intro to SoftBank and the rationale behind Masayoshi Sun's so-called gambit with a US $100 billion technology fund? SoftBank itself is is just a telco. That's all it is. It's a a telecom operator. It's based in Japan. They have a domestic telco called SoftBank. It it accounts for about a third of revenue, but more than 50% of their, their profit. Another third of revenue comes from Sprint, which is the US wireless operator that they bought a few years ago, which is not doing quite as well. You know, it doesn't contribute anywhere near as much uh, net income. In fact, it's it's really been struggling. As an aside, they were in talks to sell to T-Mobile, but it was only just, you know, uh, this week, you know, early November of 2017, that SoftBank and, and T-Mobile and Sprint all basically said, talks are off, we're not going to pursue this anymore which has left a lot of people scratching their heads thinking, what the heck is SoftBank going to do with Sprint? Because clearly they wanted to get rid of it and move on. But Masayoshi Son couldn't come to a deal with with T-Mobile or or T-Mobile's parent, Deutsche Telekom, because he wanted to to do a merger but still hold control. And clearly T-Mobile USA is like, no, we're not going to do a merger and let you control the merged entity, which made sense because T-Mobile is a stronger company. So it just didn't go anywhere. So that's, you know, the two kind of largest parts of SoftBank, uh, SoftBank Group Corp. And the other parts, essentially, uh, now the SoftBank Vision Fund is is a contributor to their bottom line. And the reason why Masayoshi-san decided to open up the SoftBank Vision Fund, which, as you say, is going to be a $100 billion fund, which is just an incredible, colossal amount of money, is that... He gets to play with $100 billion, but he doesn't have to contribute $100 billion. <laughs> Got other investors coming in and contributing most of the money for him, but according to the terms of the fund and the, the management of the fund, Masa is essentially the uh, the monarch of that fund. He is the king of the fund. He makes the decisions. And so all of those other companies that decided to invest in the fund 
are essentially buying into Musa's vision for the future. If you're one of these companies that's bought into the fund, you are saying, I believe in Musa's future vision and I want to be part of it and I believe it's, it's going to be for the good and uh, here we go, here's our money. And that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's kind of like an off-balance sheet venture fund of SoftBank Group. And what's interesting is that the management company of the fund is 100% owned by SoftBank itself and the management group gets management fees. So no matter what the, uh, the return on the fund, SoftBank Group will get management fee income anyway, which is a nice little side deal for it. It's not going to be the major contributor to profit from the Vision Fund. Hopefully the Vision Fund will actually make profits itself through their investments going up in value, but you know, they will still get some kind of uh, fee income from it. So what is the investment strategy behind the Vision Fund then? You know, to quote them, this is this is from their own statement, SoftBank Group created the SoftBank Vision Fund as a result of its strongly held belief that the next stage of the information revolution is underway. And building the businesses that will make this possible will require unprecedented large-scale long-term investment. I mean, to cut a long story short, the, the simple way of saying it is that Massa believes that you know, the next wave of, of technology revolution, as he likes to call it, will require massive investments in all sorts of big kind of businesses. Arm, for example, they bought out all of Arm and uh, SoftBank bought Arm and now is going to transfer a portion of those shares to the fund. They've also bought shares in NVIDIA. And they basically want to go around the world and buy into these companies, not small investments. It's, it's not a VC fund. It's not some kind of angel fund. It's big scale investments, you know, billion dollar investments. And they want to essentially put all that together in some kind of like overarching uh, platform that will tie all these component parts of the future internet, you know, information revolution together. And so it's this massive big vision thing. Massa doesn't think small. He thinks big. And he needs a lot of money to think big. So that's really what it comes down to. That's the vision. That's the strategy. And part of that investment strategy also includes his belief that there is this whole technological singularity piece, right? Yeah, he believes, I mean, it's part of the SoftBank 2.0 vision that, there. Yeah, I guess a technology singularity, I don't know if he believes in the AI singularity, which is another thing, but yes, all of these component parts will fit together in future and and he wants to ensure that he's got all the components of this future technology singularity and combine it all together and create something even bigger from the sum of the parts. So who are the investors behind the Vision Fund then? Well, the, the biggest one contributing the largest share is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They've, uh, they've gone really big on it, more than $40 billion of, of, the 45, uh, of, the, of the $100 billion is coming from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The other one, the other big investor is uh, Mubadala. Mubadala is basically from the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. They're putting in about 15 billion. And then SoftBank's putting in 28 billion. But what's interesting is they're not putting in 28 billion of cash. It's actually, a lot of it's coming in kind. For example, they're putting their shares of ARM, which SoftBank bought before the Vision Fund was founded. They're putting those shares into the Vision Fund and basically taking it as a value, as an in-kind, so it's not a cash payment. Then we've got companies like Foxconn and Sharp, Qualcomm, Apple, they're all putting in minor amounts, like, you know, Apple's got a billion dollars. And so there's various others. And in future, I think we'll see some other names come in. But mostly, I think it's mostly closed in terms of the, the investor list. But it's essentially 
you know, those two uh, Middle Eastern you know, government funds, Mubadala and, uh, and, and Saudi Arabia, that are, are taking up the lion's share of the investment. And the others are really just for, just to be part of the, kind of be along for the ride, like, you know, Qualcomm and Apple, you know, a billion dollars is nothing to those companies, but they like to be, you know, part, have their finger in the pie and, and keep, in, keep tabs on what uh, Master is up to. SoftBank's vision fund is a league of its own against the, all the other funds out there. I mean, if you think about the early stage, it's not an early stage fund. Neither is a Series A to F fund. It could not even be counted as a mezzanine None. So how are they compared against the best US funds out there? They essentially suck all of the oxygen out of the room when it comes to... <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just so much money that there's no other major Silicon Valley fund that comes close. There really isn't. And then I don't think there ever will be. One thing about VC funds is that there's a certain benefit to being small because you've got more upside. When you're sitting a lot of money, you've got to deploy that capital. And it's very hard to make huge upsides when your investments are huge. You know, you can get a, a, a 20 buy return when you invest $50 million in something. It's very hard to get a 20 buy return when you invest a billion dollars in something. I mean, it can happen, but it's just, just much more difficult because then the company you're investing in has to scale to you know, $100 billion or $500 billion. So it's just more and more difficult to be able to get the kind of scales of return that VC funds rely on. The vision fund, as we said, is not a VC fund. It's, it's a different type of fund. And it's, it really basically means that they're going to be much larger than anybody else. I mean, the big names out there, such as, you know, you're talking about you know, PE funds, you've got Apollo, Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, KKR. Then you've got a whole lot of uh, you know, Silicon Valley VCs, and none of them are that big. I mean, Andreas and Horowitz is, you know, five, five, six billion dollars. That sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but not when you compare it to hundred billion dollars. And so that's really the thing. And so going forward, if there's a great company out there that's of a, of a medium size, and you know, two companies want to invest in it. One of them is, say, Andreas and Horowitz, which is a very well-respected Silicon Valley fund, or SoftBank. You know, one one of these has you know five or six billion dollars. One of them has a hundred billion dollars. Essentially, SoftBank can outbid them and say, "Well, I'll pay more money for the stake." And that's going to be the biggest risk to Silicon Valley funds is that they're just going to keep bidding up and bidding up stakes. And if you're a startup and you've got someone saying. I'll give you a billion, and you got someone else saying, "I'll give you two billion for the same stake." Well, who are you going to take the money from, right? You know, you're going to take two billion dollars for the same stake, and that's really going to be the big challenge for Silicon Valley. How do they compete with that? I find it very interesting because most of the big funds out there, whether it's Goldman Sachs or Blackstone, they are at least twenty billion dollar fund. This fund is definitely out of range for everyone out there. So does that mean that SoftBank has the ability to make life miserable for all venture capitalists because they drive the valuations up and, as you said, suck out the oxygen? Yeah, I think I think it will for two reasons. Uh, I, I say it has the potential. I'm not saying absolute that it will, but it has the potential for, for, to cause a lot of problems for, for VC funds especially. And that's for two reasons. One is that they can essentially outbid any other you know, fund who wants to get a stake. Imagine you're uh, Uber, because they're in talks to, to buy a stake in Uber, or Lyft, which they may also do. And you're a, you're, you're a VC fund, and you're thinking of getting involved in the next Uber round. They could come in and say, well, you know, I will pay more for this. And SoftBank would therefore get the, get the gig, get the stake. 
and that makes it a very difficult decision for the other VC fund to say, well, either I outbid SoftBank for that stake or I lose out. And if you know about how you know Silicon Valley VC funds work, FOMO is everything. Fear of missing out is everything. You know, you don't want to be the VC partner who passed on the next big thing, right? You know, if you're the VC partner who decided not to invest in Facebook or or Google or, or even um, you know Uber, you kind of have, have egg on your face, right? So you don't want to miss out. And so if you miss out to SoftBank because you just couldn't afford to pay, that kind of hurts. But then there's a flip side to that: is is SoftBank does bid up an investment in in a next next company that could be the next big thing, the next you know mega unicorn. And instead of paying a billion dollars, you decide you're going to pay two billion dollars, and you do outbid SoftBank, and you get the gig. Well, what happens is that your return in the future is going to be less, right? It's going to be a lot less because if that investment then rises to be, you know, your $1 billion investment rises to be $20 billion, that $2 billion investment rises to be $20 billion. You know, it's a very different scale of return. And VCs make their money from huge scale returns on a few winners. And so that's the other risk is that by bidding up the price, you're basically bidding down the potential returns on these these startups that you're investing in. And that's also a very, very big risk for VCs. And I think that's something they'd be very concerned about. Well, here's the interesting part. I have a different perspective to the problem. The venture capitalists should be doing between seed stage all the way to series F funds, because that's where the real money they have been making through. But what has happened in the last couple of years in Silicon Valley is that everybody started to move upstream to the Series C almost, Series D almost doing like 100 million, 200 million investment at one time. So basically what SoftBank really did is they basically cut off the entire top, the high line investment. Only the best startups would get to that range Mm -hmm. and basically do. Then the VC should just go back down to the funnel and basically look at the smaller ones. I think many VCs will be agree taking a different uh, the opposite view to what I was just talking about by saying you know what this is awesome our exit strategy can be softbank <laughs> you know they don't have to wait for an IPO yeah. they just you know and, and in fact there is talk of current investors in Uber selling out some or all of their stake in Uber to to softbank vision fund and they would get a nice you know many times return and they wouldn't have to wait for an Uber IPO and let's remember Uber isn't profitable, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're one of the early investors, say a seed, you know, or an early, say an A or B round investor in Uber, and you've put in, you know, a couple of hundred million, maybe a billion, SoftBank comes, SoftBank Vision Fund comes along and says, hey, I want to stake an Uber. As a VC, you're probably rubbing your hands with glee going, all right, take my stake. You know, I've made my 20 times return. I get out right here. Uh, I get the cash back into my fund, my my investors get you know, a nice little payout, and then we can turn around and do the next you know, Series A or Series B investment. And I think there will be many VCs who love the idea of all this cash basically coming in to buy them out. That's a good point. So maybe this will be the new business strategy for VCs. So coming to it, which are the companies that are actually invested by the SoftBank Vision Funds so far? Well, so far, the... There is talk about investing in Uber, but it hasn't happened yet. Masayoshi San said just recently in, in early November that, you know what, if it doesn't happen, then we'll just go and talk to Lyft. And he may just be saying that publicly to kind of put pressure on Uber. 
Like, hey, if you don't do a deal with us, we'll go to your rival. Or maybe he really will talk to Lyft. I don't know. I mean, Masayashi's son is not an idiot, so he knows what he's doing. So really one of the biggest deals so far for the Vision Fund is Arm. And that's because SoftBank Group bought Arm previously and is now just transferring some of that investment over to uh, to the Vision Fund. Another one is is uh, WeWork, similar, where it's kind of shared between both SoftBank and the Vision Fund. Another one I think is very, very interesting is NVIDIA. NVIDIA is doing, I mean, their stock has just gone up, like I think it's tenfold in the last two years. It's trading about uh, over $200 as we speak today, uh, and it was at $20 in, in 2015. So that's gone gangbusters, basically, because of AI. They've developed these AI chips, and they've gone from their kind of the graphics processing unit chops to, to develop further beyond that. And NVIDIA shares have gone up a lot. In fact, just in a few months of, of being involved in NVIDIA uh, stock, SoftBank has made buckets of money, billions of dollars. I don't know if that'll keep persisting, but... They have pledged to, you know, basically transfer the NVIDIA shares from SoftBank to the Vision Fund. So that's happening. They do have a stake in Didi, which is, you know, the Chinese ride-sharing company. They also have a stake in Flipkart, the Indian uh, e-commerce uh, startup. And then there's a very long list of other companies, you know, OneWeb and SoFi and Garden Health and Oyo, I mean, and Improbable and, uh, and even Slack. An interesting anecdote with Slack, Slack is uh, an instant messenger for corporate usage. It's very popular in, in the U.S. in Silicon Valley amongst tech people. I use it, and, and, and it's quite good. At the recent investor conference, Masayoshi Son asked the audience, hey, you know, how many people have you heard of, here have heard of Slack? And only about 5% of people in the room had put their hands up. And Masayoshi Son, I mean, that that's looked like, you know, what a failure. No one's ever heard of this company. Masayoshi Son, being the consummate salesman, turns around and says, that's fantastic. That means we've got upside potential. There's future growth potential because only 5% of you heard of it, and everyone will hear it. And so that's that's a classic Masayoshi Son where he, he turns... Uh, you know, water into wine. So that's, you know, that's that's one of the many portfolio companies, this is the SoftBank Vision Fund. And this is a fund that's not even been going a year. So, you know, they've been pretty busy early on and there will be more and more investments going forward. So how big must your company be in order to be invested by the SoftBank Vision Fund then? Well, there's no specific size of the company, but under the kind of the, the unwritten, well, the written rules or, or the statements, to divide between SoftBank Group, the company, and the Vision Fund, they've basically pledged that any investment of 100 million US dollars or more would go through the Vision Fund or first priority through the Vision Fund. And anything of a less than 100 million US dollars would probably go through SoftBank itself. So SoftBank has come out and said, look, you know, SoftBank itself will still keep making investments. You know, we, we're not going to stop doing investments just because the Vision Fund has been opened and doing investments. So there will be both sides of, you know, doing investments, but $100 million is kind of that dividing line between which one would be Vision Fund and which one would be, uh, which one would be SoftBank itself. Yeah, you and I probably wouldn't have a line that we can down straight to Masayoshi San for getting the investment. So who are the key people who I need to get in touch to get this kind of investments of such? Well, if anyone has a company that uh, they think needs 100 million US dollars, <laughs> the gentleman, the, the key point man is is a guy called Rajiv Misra. He's a, a, a graduate of UPenn and MIT Sloan School. His background is actually in debt trading. He's not an equities guy or a startup guy. He's actually in debt trading. He worked previously at Deutsche Bank and UBS and, and, and others. So that's really his background. 
He's been tapped by Massa to, to be the point man. The Vision Fund and its management is actually going to be based is based in London, of all places. And so that's really kind of be the, going to be the central point. But at the end of the day, Massa is still going to be the key man. I mean, he, I don't think he delegates anything to anybody. He, he will be the final arbiter of a lot of deals. But I think Rajiv Misra is, is kind of the person you want to with whom you want to get your foot in the door and he has a whole team around him you know there's dozens of other people some from Deutsche Bank and elsewhere you know finance professionals and they will be in London doing much of that uh, heavy lifting this part of the vision fund is actually is impact with a lot of startup unicorns across the world so I'm going to start from SoftBank and Uber I guess my question is if SoftBank ever closes the deal with Uber it means that now he has owned all four major players on ride sharing Ola, Grab, Didi included. So my perspective, throwing crystal ball, does that mean they might force a, an IPO on all four or force all of them to consolidate into one? I think that it would be difficult to get them all to consolidate, but I think that we could see... I think most of them, all four of them, would probably IPO. I think that Didi and Uber would IPO simply because they're too big to have any other exit. I mean, if you think of what exits you can have, essentially there's two ways to exit. One is to be bought out or merged pre-IPO, and the other one is to IPO. At the end of the day, the investors in these companies need to get the cash back at some point. You know, they're not going in to buy a stock for many, many years that gets publicly traded and get nice dividends. That, that's not the business they're in. They get in early, build the company, exit, get out, get their cash back, you know, turn around and do it all over again. And so I think that Didi and uh, and Uber are just too big to be bought out. They may merge with someone, I, I can't think of whom, and we could certainly speculate on who would want to merge with, you know, I mean, Uber's valued at $45 billion or something or some very high amount. I think it's more than that now. So IPO for those two. Ola and Grab, probably IPO. But I think they're still kind of small enough that they could merge with someone else or get bought out by someone else, either cash or stock. And remember that Didi has tie-ups and relationships with many other companies around the world. They're very good at that. And Lyft is also doing you know, tie-ups with everyone. Uber's strategy mostly around the world has been to go alone in every market and be the Uber brand in every market. Didi's approach has been to go to smaller markets and just be kind of a, a, almost like code sharing in airlines where, you know, if you have the Didi app and you go to this country, you'd open the app and the front end is, you know, the Didi app. But on the back end, really what you're getting is connection to the local version of Didi or Uber, the local ride sharing company. And so Didi's approach is very, very different. I don't imagine that there would be any merger of all these companies. Remember, Didi, you know, and Uber got out of China and um, actually made quite a lot of money actually by being defeated in China and they, they handed over or sold their stake to Didi. I don't imagine that all of these would merge. Maybe Ola and Grab, but I wouldn't hold out for that because no matter what Masayoshi Son wants to do and no matter how powerful he is and his big vision, you're still dealing with founders at, at you know, the grassroots level and, uh, and anyone who's ever dealt with, with founders, they're a stubborn bunch of people and they may not you know, take well to the idea of, of merging. But I would suspect that there might be a bit more cooperation with some of them, but I wouldn't see all four cooperating together in some kind of massive soft bank ride-sharing platform. I think that they will probably, for the foreseeable future, be runs pretty much independently. I actually have a pretty educated guess. My guess is that Didi will acquire Grab and 
Uber will acquire Ola. I think that would make sense. Because um, in terms of geography, in terms of also geopolitical alliances, China's influence in the Southeast Asian market probably would make Grab a much more suitable mm. acquisition target to Didi than to Grab. And the we have seen the Chinese moving into Southeast Asia. Yeah. Obviously, Alibaba has been moving into Southeast Asia, and Didi would, you know, being a Chinese company, or uh, Grab being, you know, big in, in Southeast Asia, it would make sense. I don't know how quickly it would happen. I do think that if anyone's going to make it happen, Masa would try. He's tried to get companies to sit down and merge and, and, and so forth. He tried that with Indian e-commerce companies. He kind of failed. doesn't mean he won't have another shot at it, but it definitely would make sense. I think you're right. That's I think that's a pretty incisive view that those two, that could happen. And maybe Master would be the one to, to push that forward because he's going to be such a, a, a large, looming figure in both of those companies. I want to get to the SoftBank and Flipkart's net news situation. So SoftBank has now invested in net news competitor Flipkart in India. I mean, what does that mean for everyone else that you invest? You can invest in me, but you know, if I if I'm not good enough, SoftBank can always go to my competitor the next day and invest in them too. One of the traditional things in VC, an unwritten rule in VC investing, is that when you invest in one, you can't invest in the other. This this idea of a conflict, and. What I hear quite often from a VC is that they see a new business startup and they think this new business is cool, but they're not exactly convinced that this new business will be the leader in that new space. Maybe someone else will come along and do a better job of it. And even though this, this first business might be the first mover, a VC may not want to invest, even though they think it's, this is a great new category, because if they invest too quickly in this first mover, they're basically cut out of investing in someone else who comes along who might do a better job of it, right? So, for example, if you were, you know, Uber and Lyft were kind of starting up at the same time, I think Lyft actually was a little bit earlier, if you went and invested in Lyft, you couldn't have invested in Uber, for example. But with Masayoshi Son and SoftBank, that rule doesn't apply, clearly. I mean, he's invested in Didi, he's thinking of investing in Uber or Lyft and Ola and Grab, you know, so competitors... I mean, they're in different geographies, admittedly. But then India was a very good example of that, where he's in Snapdeal, he's in Flipkart. He's invested in both sides of it, right? Like, that doesn't make sense. A VC would never do that. But that's Masayoshi Son. He does what he wants. And what are you going to do about it? I mean, it's no law that stops you from doing that. Um, Maybe there's contracts or whatever, but he can do that. And it basically says, don't rest on your laurels. That's the first thing it says. It also says that if, if you aren't Amazon in India, if you're not Flip, Flipkart or Snapdeal, good luck. I think the future of Indian e-commerce, if you're not one of those top three mass companies, is probably niche uh, e-commerce. Maybe it's groceries, maybe it's you know FMCG. I mean, look at the things that Amazon has bought over the last few years. I mean, they bought, you know, they bought I think it was Dollar Shave, they bought uh, you know, a grocery company, they bought this company, they bought that company, they're going it alone with you know, their own sportswear line. They're doing a lot of different things. And that would be the playbook for anyone in India. So maybe SoftBank would go into those niches. But uh, sorry, I mean, when I say SoftBank, I mean the Vision Fund might go into these niches. But the Vision Fund wants big, king hitter kinds of investments, and so maybe those new businesses would be too small. But overall, it means that you know just because you've got SoftBank in your court now on your side now doesn't mean there will be a year from now. That's pretty good. So. The last question on this, so what is the impact on the global startup ecosystem with a fund of such massive scaling? I think if you're a startup, 
and you've got an idea that's like a big, massive scale, if you're thinking IoT and all those other... Basically, I would say any startup founder or potential startup founder should look at one or two videos of Massa on, on stage talking about his vision, go out and build a company, scale it, and knock on the door because he's got $100 billion, and there's even talk of raising a second fund of another 200, you know, another $100 billion. He's going to be very, very hungry. He's going to be looking for companies to invest in, and that means that someone's going to have to create those companies. And so there's going to be a mass of companies wanting to probably tap into that when there's a lot of, you know, for the longest time in, in this region, in, in Asia, people used to think that the key was to start up a company and then go and knock on the door of BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. That was your exit strategy. And before that, it was like you start up a company, you'd sell it to Yahoo or Google, right? Now I think the new kind of strategy is you start up a company and you think about how you can sell it to SoftBank. And so we'll probably see a new wave of companies trying to tap into and channel Massa's vision, thinking, well, what, what will Massa want to buy three years from now? And they'll get to work on trying to build those companies today. Tim, it's always a pleasure. This time around, I got at least an hour of you to talk about Toshiba Liu and talk about the SoftBank Vision Fund. So I have two questions in the closing. The first one is, do you have a book, podcast, or anything you want to recommend to my audience that's relevant to your work and personal life? Well, there's a lot of podcasts out there. In fact, you know, uh, Bloomberg has a podcast, and I know you've had Brad Stone on the show before. I think that's a brilliant podcast. And another one that uh, it's also a Bloomberg uh, branded podcast, so I guess I'm talking up my own company, and that's called Odd Lots. It's a little bit outside of the tech space. They talk more about market issues. They've been talking about ICOs and Bitcoins recently. I recommend listening to the Odd Lots podcast, putting that on your on your feed, because uh, it's fascinating. They're about 20 to 30 minutes a show and I really really find them interesting they get some really interesting market you know, financial markets concepts and they talk to fantastic experts in the field so I definitely recommend people listen to that uh, and frankly uh, a lot of the ones that I listen to are, <laughs> are the ones that you've recommended in your podcast over the last few months so I'm listening to the same people you're listening to I think I, I probably have one little recommendation I recently read a very interesting book by Catherine Cram, Personal History. She was the owner of Washington mm. Post. And what I really liked about the book is that the family has actually laid down very strong principles in journalism. Mm. And to talk about high-quality journalism, what is their role to the people and how they fended against Nixon during the Watergate scandal and also with the Pentagon Papers. You have to really imagine the kind of scenario of that time. And I thought that for journalism, that's a really great book to read. And I... Highly recommend it. I, I actually, that's a good idea. I'd love to read that book. Uh, Catherine Graham uh, and the role that she's played in, in you know, 20th century journalism, I think is fascinating. And, and the, the, the Graham family, and of course, um, they've since uh, sold it off to uh, Jeff Bezos, who's who's owns the company now and, uh, and is keeping it going and seems to be keeping the traditions of Washington Post alive. So that's a, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll listen, I'll read that book myself. My last question, how did my audience find you? So uh, Twitter is the main uh, the way, main way of finding me. You can find all of uh, Bloomberg Gadfly columnists at bloomberg.com slash gadfly, G-A-D-F-L-Y. To find me, I'm on Twitter at T Culpan, so that's at T-C-U-L-P-A-N. I uh, tweet on most of my columns and various other stuff that I'm interested in. I'm very big on, uh, of course, the hardware supply chain in Asia and, and basically everything from, uh, from Korea to India and, and uh, a lot of stuff in between. You can find me now at Bernard Leung and, of course, my .com. 
And you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acas, and TuneIn. Of course, Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me and of course, give me your five-star ratings or a star on, on Overcast. And of course, most importantly, send me your feedback. And lately, I actually got some feedback from uh, some listeners about some of the recent episodes. Just a quick shout-out to Ben Bowen out there who has actually contacted me and talked about one of my recent episodes on the One by One Road that was a pretty good episode. I thought that that was a great episode to have a conversation. So once again, Tim, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard. It's been fun.